You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what he has to say in his word. A couple of uh, updates for the church regarding some of our saints. Uh, had the joy to spend some time around Ryan Johnson yesterday. He was, uh, he's been receiving treatment for leukemia, and he was well enough that uh, we had some cleaning to do at the uh, space we'll be moving into here in a couple of months. Uh, we've been trying to go in there and uh, keep things picked up as guys are doing construction, but he volunteered to come over and help us out and just uh, such a uh, joy to see him feeling well enough and having the energy uh, to come and, and use his strength. A um, little more disappointing update uh, regarding our uh, friend Laird. I uh, was letting you know that uh, Laird was uh, diagnosed with some sort of a viral, uh, you know, sickness, and it's really wreaked havoc on his body. It's really destroyed his lungs and uh, unfortunately, um, it's really just at a point now where they're having to decide when to reduce his oxygen and let him uh, go be with the Lord. So uh, we will rejoice with uh, God's kindness um, in all things. And he has certainly been good to Karen and Laird, and they are finding their hope and strength in him. But uh, we will remember those families as we go to the Lord this morning in prayer. So please join me. As we pray, uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we always come here on Sunday mornings knowing that we live in a very imperfect world, um, but sometimes we are especially aware of how imperfect the world is because of uh, what we're experiencing and what we see those that we love experiencing. And this morning we come um, just thanking you for how you have continued to supply strength uh, to the Johnson uh, family and as well as Karen and Laird and Lord we uh, rejoice in how Ryan is doing and we pray for the further treatments that he will uh, receive that you would give the doctors uh, continued wisdom and that the procedures would just uh, continue to go very well and that he would be back on his feet soon we pray for healing uh, total healing full healing that he could serve you uh, with the same strength he had uh, before he started receiving treatment uh, for his leukemia. We pray, um, we pray especially for Karen and Laird that during this time, Lord, that you would uh, help them to um, just continue to find their hope and strength in you. And we just thank you for Laird's hope in the gospel. We thank you for uh, how he just loves you so dearly that he is using even the last moments of life to uh, proclaim the gospel to every doctor and nurse around him uh, that he can and uh, to just hear how he is finding his courage and strength in you, Lord. Uh, we pray you would help him to uh, finish the race well here and uh, for Karen that you would uh, give her special comfort knowing that um, you will take care of her uh, no matter what uh, she will face here in the coming months and years ahead, Lord. Um, we thank you, uh, Father, now also for the time we get to spend in your word. And I pray, Father, you would give me help uh, that as I proclaim your truth, 
you would use it, Father, to confront us and also comfort us. Uh, we've been singing this morning, where else can we go? And we have these moments where the, our hearts are prone to wander, and, and yet we kind of think to ourselves, so where are we going to go? Um, how can we possibly leave uh, the God who has done so much for us? Uh, we know nothing in this world satisfies uh, we've been there, we've tried it, sometimes we dabble in it again, and we're just reminded of the regret that comes with sin and, um, and the shame. And Father, we just, we're so thankful for your grace and your mercy and your loving kindness. And I pray this morning we would just have a, a fuller, richer view of Jesus, uh, that you would stir our hearts once again uh, to celebrate all that he has done uh, in coming into the world for sinners like us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, we were prevented from gathering a week ago. Uh, but no worries. We're still moving at a good pace here. And we find ourselves in a wonderful place in the Gospel of Matthew as we enter this season of thinking more about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so I want to invite you to turn open your Bibles to Matthew, where we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. And I'll read those verses here in a moment, uh, but before we jump in, uh, especially since our study was interrupted, I think it would just be helpful maybe to remind you of the setting uh, that we find ourselves in. So perhaps you remember this, that uh, Jesus has been on a journey to Jerusalem for some time, and uh, he actually started this journey in Matthew 16. That's when he really set his sights on Jerusalem. And you probably remember the exchange that Jesus has with Peter, right? First he asks Peter, hey, Peter, who do people say that I am? And, and Peter provides a response. Well, some say Elijah, some say some of the prophets. And of course, Jesus says, well, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, to which, of course, you know, Jesus rejoices. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's a great moment followed by a total collapse thereafter though, right? Because what does Peter do next? Uh, well, Jesus will begin to explain the sufferings that he must experience in Jerusalem. We learn about this in Matthew 16, verse 21. We read, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And what happens after that? Well, Peter says, well, far be it that that should happen to you, Lord. Uh, which, of course, uh, Jesus has to correct. And he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. But just, just think about that moment as the very moment when Jesus really sets his sights on Jerusalem. And this happens about six months before Jesus will enter Jerusalem. Uh, so he's moving to Jerusalem ever since 
chapter 16, and as he moves there, the crowds are swelling and growing as more people are following him. And in fact, we saw a bit of this last time we were together, right? Because what did we notice? Uh, what, what came before our passage today? Well, we saw how Jesus healed two blind men as he is coming out of Jericho. And after he heals them, they follow him. And we aren't told this in Matthew, but we also know uh, he picked up another follower uh, outside of Jericho by the name of Zacchaeus. Remember, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man indeed was he, right? And he was a corrupt, uh, greedy, swindler of a guy. He was very well known. He was very hated. He was a Jew, but he was working for the Romans and cheating people out of their money and pocketing plenty of money for his own uh, sordid purposes, but by God's grace, he also becomes a follower of Jesus. He joins in on the crowd. Uh, so Jericho was the last place that we saw Jesus. And now today, we fast forward and we see him finally entering Jerusalem by way of Bethany and Bethpage. And interestingly, the journey from Jericho to Bethany would have required a walk of some uh, 14 miles and an ascent of 3,500 feet. So not necessarily the uh, easiest path to walk, even though it was connected by a paved road. And that was rather unique because, as you probably understand, there wasn't a lot of paved roads back then. If there was a paved road, uh, it's because Rome built it and they found that uh, there was going to be plenty of reasons to go to those destinations uh, likely to collect taxes and uh, flex their muscle and all of those different things. So it tells you a little bit about these destinations. But with that, here Jesus and the disciples again are finally at Jerusalem. And uh, so what we're looking at today has for a very long time been understood as the events of Palm Sunday. Okay, So I, I realize we're a little ahead of schedule because it's not Palm Sunday quite yet, but this is the Palm Sunday passage. And there are plenty of reasons to believe that Jesus actually entered in Jerusalem on a Monday, that maybe Palm Monday is more accurate. I won't get into all the reasons for that. There's no theological uh, issue that's at stake if you uh, change the date on this, but we're looking at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And with that then, if you would, follow along with me as I read for us, beginning in verse 1. Matthew writes, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, um, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed 
is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So again, Palm Sunday, also the first uh, part of the Passover week. And as you think about what's going on here, it might be helpful to think about it in this way, that essentially what we observe here is a coronation ceremony. But because of how this coronation ceremony is orchestrated, how it all takes place, it is certainly under the radar. It is extremely humble. It is not something those in Jerusalem would have understood to be a coronation ceremony because it lacked the grandeur and the pomp and the circumstance of what someone would have expected with a typical coronation for a king. Nonetheless, it is indeed a coronation ceremony because as Matthew has pointed out time and again, who is Jesus? Jesus is a king. And he's not just any king. He is God's king. He is the only one who is uniquely qualified to be God's king based on his birth, based on his signs, based on his wonders, based on his fulfillment of prophecy, and on and on and on. The way he meets these qualifications is listed. So it's a coronation ceremony, and Jesus is a king. And the king has finally arrived in Jerusalem. God's king has come to God's city to be worshipped and praised and adored by what is supposed to be God's people. So that's what's happening. Given then that this is a coronation, as we move through our text this morning, here's what I think will be helpful. I want us to notice four details that help us understand the you unique dynamic of this very odd and very strange and very humble coronation ceremony. And if you're a note taker, I'm going to give you my points in advance. I know some of you really appreciate that, and then we'll move through these. So first we'll look at the king's preceding location, where he starts from. In verse 1, his preceding location, and then we'll look at the king's prophetic instructions in verses 2 through 5. And then we'll look at the king's prominent entry in verses 6 through 9. And then we will think about the king's peculiar reception in verses 10 through 11. So preceding location, prophetic instructions, prominent entry, peculiar reception. Those are the key words. With that then, let's begin by looking at the king's preceding location. So in verse 1, look there, we read this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem... They came to a place called Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. And the question I simply want to begin with at this point is this, why Bethpage? Why Bethpage? And it, it makes sense to ask this question because one thing we know is that Jesus lodged in Bethany during the Passover week. That is where he would have stayed customarily every time that he came to Jerusalem. He made annual trips to Jerusalem. We know that for Passover. And uh, when he did that, he would stay at the home of Mary and Martha. We learn that in John chapter 12, verse 12. And as a reference point, I brought some 
pictures today. I don't normally bring pictures, but hey, we brought pictures because we're talking about these locations, and I think getting kind of a, a, a glance at the landscape can be helpful. So we've got some bright lights up there on the screen today, so it might be difficult to see, but just, uh, can we dim that at all? We got Ethan working. Oh, golf clap for Ethan. Thank you, brother. Okay, so on the uh, upper left-hand corner of the screen there, um, that's, you know, that's Jerusalem. You've got the temple there. Uh, on the upper right-hand corner of that, uh, that yellow square. And then as you see, we've got the Mount of Olives to the right of that. And uh, you've got uh, Bethpage there, uh, which is where the 3, 6, and 9 are located. And then over at uh, 2, uh, you've got Bethany. Okay, so now this is a pretty close-up map. Okay, so just the distance between Jerusalem and Bethany is about two miles. So just outside of Jerusalem. This would have been then a bedroom community of Jerusalem. And Bethpage is smaller than even Bethany, hence why it's referred to as a village. Just a really small, think of it as a, maybe a little rural uh, spot. But anyways, that is where uh, Jesus uh, goes and uh, that's where the disciples retrieve a donkey uh, along with a colt. And again, the question is, why there? And I, I show this map because you have to think, you know, if Jesus gets the donkey and the colt in Bethany, it actually saves him some walking. Uh, because to get to Bethpage would have required about a 20-minute a walk, maybe a little bit more, and a, a steep incline, right? Now, you could just save some effort, just get the donkey right there in Bethany, right? But he doesn't. He goes over. So why? Uh, two reasons, though, I want to give you. One is uh, a biblical reason, and the other is maybe a, a more symbolic reason. So first, the biblical reason. And to explain the biblical reason, I think it might help to explain a bit about the book of Zechariah and the prophet Zechariah. Uh, because not only does this seem to be an allusion here to Zechariah and their significance, but we also notice that the cult and the specific animals also mentioned in Zechariah. So let's just talk about Zechariah for a moment. Now keep in mind that Zechariah is only one of three what we would call post-exilic prophets. And so actually in your Old Testament, you'll notice um, right, that uh, the last three books of the Old Testament um, are these three prophets that we've got. Uh, we've got uh, Zechariah along with Haggai and Malachi. And those three prophets are writing to the people of Israel after the Jews have been allowed uh, to return to Jerusalem. They are prophesying to those groups, right? Because understand what happened with, with Israel, right? Because of their sin and idolatry, God allowed enemy nations to come in and ransack them and carry them off into exile. And so that's what happened. Both the northern tribes and the southern tribes eventually become taken over by other nations, right? And then you have this book called Daniel where you have the people of Israel during exile. But we know something unique happens where even though the Jews would be uh, under the control of these Gentile rulers, there comes a time when the Gentile rulers say, hey, we're going to allow you to return to Jerusalem. 
and uh, start a rebuilding project there. And uh, when these prophets are speaking to the people of Israel, just understand that there's now been three different movements of Jews back to Jerusalem. And uh, essentially, here are the circumstances. Uh, they, they have begun rebuilding Jerusalem, but much of it was still in shambles from the Babylonian invasion. And interestingly, though the rebuilding of the city had begun and even the foundation of the temple had been laid, the work just kind of stopped because the people became sinfully preoccupied with other things. So here's what the Lord did then. He sent Haggai and Zechariah to help with the completion specifically of the temple. And we learn about this in the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 5, verse 2, we are told how the prophets of God uh, were with the people, supporting them. And then we are told in Ezra 6, verse 14, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And their message was essentially this. They spoke about how the greatest days of Jerusalem were yet ahead. Because God still had plans for Jerusalem. And his plan was to preserve a remnant people from all the world powers which oppressed the Jews and threatened their extinction. And God actually, he also had a plan to destroy Gentile nations and to save Israel since they are the people of the Messiah. So here was the hope then of Zechariah that one day the Messiah would come. And when he did, he would vanquish all Israel's enemies and then establish his kingdom on earth. And in communicating all of this, the, the book of Zechariah breaks down into two major parts, with the beginning of the book revealing messages that were given during the building of the temple at a time when God's people lived in a ruined Jerusalem, wondering if they had any future at all. That uh, takes up chapters 1 through 8, and the latter part of the book revealing messages that took place after the building of the temple in order to encourage the Jews about the coming of their Messiah and all that would happen afterwards. So, significant book in terms of understanding the work of God in future times, right? That said, consider what's written in Zechariah 14 and remember the original question, why Bethpage, right? Why Bethpage? Well, Ultimately, Bethpage sits right on top of the Mount of Olives. Bethany would have been on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And now with that in mind, consider Zechariah 14, beginning of verse 1. Behold, it says, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil is taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. So, there are significant messianic expectations with the Mount of Olives, okay? So, 
There is yet future events to take place that will take place on the Mount of Olives. And one thing that's interesting about Zechariah, right, is you have a lot of this kind of future militaristic, redemptive um, stuff going on, but then you also have prophecies like we come to in just a moment where we're told the Messiah is going to show up on a donkey. You go, what do you, what do you do with that? Not quite what you would expect from a powerful military leader. So the first reason, biblical reason for being at Bethpage. Secondly, kind of a symbolic reason. Now keep in mind, and now I want to bring up a couple more pictures here. We're all about the pictures today. And keep in mind, all right, you see the temple there. And again, you notice Bethpage is just to, uh, to the east. Now I want to go to the actual buildings, the pictures of the buildings. Now this is actually just southwest of the temple a bit. This is at the west, uh, the, west the Wailing Wall there in Jerusalem. And you see there that you've got a, um, a, a mosque up there. Uh, that, that is actually where the temple used to sit. But after the second temple, remember the temple was rebuilt. After that was destroyed, uh, the Muslims would eventually build that. So that belongs to the Muslims. But the Jews, they've still got their remnant wall there uh, from the, the glory days. And so that's why so many Jews visit there. But on the other side of the temple... Oh, there we go. <laughs> On the other, just to the east of this, you keep going, and you see that high, you know, hill over there. That's the Mount of Olives. Okay, now you can look at the other picture, and this is a look from the south looking at the temple. And if you go straight east, you go right up. So just kind of picture that, right? That here you have Jesus at this very high place, a place that, you know, when the sun's coming up in the morning, actually would cast a shadow over in the direction of the temple. And as you think about just Jesus coming down from this place, I just want you to think about the silhouette that this would have created. I mean, here you see Jesus, and he's making his way towards Jerusalem, and he's coming to the very city where the Lord had promised David uh, that he would have a descendant who would sit on his throne forever, and he'd also be walking near other areas like the Kidron Valley where Solomon rode through on a mule and where he was anointed king. So, this is how one commentator put it. In other words, by entering Jerusalem from Bethpage, Jesus would have rode down the Mount of Olives that overlooked the setting in which David received the promise of a future ruler and Solomon received his crown. Just powerful imagery here. Nothing is by uh, accident, right? Everything very intentional here. So, we've just noticed the king's preceding location. Now let's notice the prophetic instructions. So, Jesus tells two of his disciples to enter the village and here are the instructions go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her untie them and bring them to me if anyone says anything to you you shall say the lord needs them and he will send them at once and if you would i just want you to think about the irony of this entire situation, uh, particularly that again, like we just we've been talking about how this is a coronation ceremony, right? But who is planning the coronation? Who's taking care of the details? Who's making the arrangements? Who's taking care of the preparations? It's Jesus. 
He's having to plan out his very own coronation ceremony. And think about how bizarre this is because, I mean, do you think Prince Charles III, who is soon to have his own coronation on May 6th, as he is recognized as King Charles III, you think he's planning his own coronation ceremony? You think he's ordering the flowers? You think he's uh, taking care of the guest list? You think he's deciding what he's going to wear? What he's going to ride in or what he's going to ride upon? Absolutely not. In fact, I have heard rumors to the effect that uh, Prince Charles is so accustomed to being pampered that he even becomes quite agitated when others don't do the most menial tasks for him. Like, I guess he gets really upset when people don't put toothpaste on his toothbrush for him. And, uh, and, and this is just the beginning of uh, a whole litany of oddities because there's, there's a few other things too, such as that he's very particular about who washes his clothes and how they wash them. Some of you are thinking your spouse is that way. Uh, he's very particular about, you know, who repairs his childhood teddy bear that I guess he's, he's still kind of close with. Uh, he's, he's very particular about having a green salad present at dinner along with a soft-boiled egg and, and things like these, right? But he's got a, a lot of things that he expects and he demands of other people to do for him. But is that life for Jesus? No, not at all. Uh, he is the one who constantly inconveniences himself for those around him. He is the one who serves. He is the one who labors. He is the one who works more than anyone else. He is the one who loves and cares and shares and takes time for those around him. And even here, he is the one who decides the date, time, location, people in attendance, and even his transportation for his coronation ceremony. So the disciples are given the instructions by Jesus. They go into the village. And then notice the foreknowledge, too, of Jesus. And he just knows immediately when they get into town, they're not going to have to be looking around. They're immediately going to see it. He knows it's going to happen. Now, you may not be surprised by this, but if you have ever sent someone to look for something in the refrigerator, as my wife has done to me several times, I open the fridge, and she's like, it's right there. And I notice everything but the very thing I was told to get, right? That doesn't happen with the disciples. Jesus says, you're going you're gonna to go into town. Immediately, you're, you're going to see it. And they do. And he also says, oh, yeah, and by the way, if somebody asks you what you're up to, why you're taking these animals, then say this to them. Just say that the Lord has need of them. Um, and I, I think because of that, it's safe to assume that whoever owned the animal was indeed a believer because they know Jesus as Lord. They acknowledge him as master. When the disciples say the Lord has need of them, there's no further questions asked. And the disciples actually were asked about why they were taking the animal. So it's a good thing the Lord told them what to do in that situation. He knew they were going to be questioned. Again, just marveling at the omniscience of Christ, even though this has, you know, been prearranged that they would come and they'd get these animals. Um, still some things in here that uh, only Jesus would have known so perfectly. So all of this 
takes place, but we still need to deal with this particular question. Why these animals? Why these particular animals? Why these specific animals? And we are told why in verse 5. Look there. Or verse 4. To fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the purpose is clear. It's unmistakable. Jesus is doing all of this very methodically, very intentionally. He knows the prophecies about himself. He knows the prophecies about how the king needs to be entering Jerusalem. And Jesus is doing every he, everything he can to make clear that he is the truly and duly born and sent Messiah. There's no obscurity here. Nothing accidental. But it's also a bit incongruent, it would seem, right? Because again, we just, we just read about Zechariah. There's going to be wrath and judgment and Gentile nations being put under God's foot, right? But then you have the Messiah showing up on a donkey. That's just not what you would expect from a powerful king that would come to trample out enemies, right? Proverbs 21 verse 31 says, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Horses. They communicate power and majesty and strength. They were the, the war machine of the day. We read how Solomon acquired thousands upon thousands upon thousands of horses. We learn about how Egypt just prided itself on its military because of the chariots and the horses that they had, right? But Jesus shows up and no horse is to be found, no stallion but a donkey, which was an animal of peace. It almost seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? But this is the theme of Jesus' life over and over and over again. We see it when he's born, don't we? How does he arrive? He doesn't come with fanfare and accolades and recognition all over the place? No, he comes without comfort and convenience. He's born in the stall of animals and he is laid in a feeding trough. And even while he serves in the world, does he set himself up in some fancy, comfortable castle? No. He is a man who has nowhere to lay his head. He has nothing of his own, no worldly possessions. He wakes up every day trusting that God is going to provide everything that he needs. And here we see it again, showing up on a donkey. But this is how things must be because this is how God said they must be. First comes humility, then comes glory. First comes suffering, then comes triumph. First comes the burden of sin, then comes the inheritance of the Father along with power and majesty. But you do not arrive at glory until you go through suffering. So those are the prophetic instructions. And now let's consider our next point, the king's prominent 
entry. Again, remember the picture. It's Passover. This means millions of people are in Jerusalem. Pilgrims who have made their way into town to celebrate God's deliverance from Egypt. And many of them have heard about Jesus and are now getting caught up in the excitement of Jesus. And there's good reason why. Now, we didn't cover this in the Gospel of Matthew, but it is helpful to keep in mind what took place before Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, specifically about 40 days before this moment. And do you remember what it was? It was the healing, actually the raising from the dead a man by the name of Lazarus whose sisters were Mary and Martha who lived in Bethany two miles away from Jerusalem. And it's important to mention Lazarus because this miracle was a major catalyst to the events leading to the cross. And what I mean by that is that the raising of Lazarus from the dead was an event that brought both blessing and backlash which is all explained for us in John 11. I'm going to read some of that for you. John 11, verse 45, we read, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And jumping ahead to verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So think of this. Jesus has performed an easily confirmable miracle less than two miles from Jerusalem and about 40 days prior to the Passover. And because of this, what would have been going on? News of this miracle would have been going up and down the streets of Jerusalem. And everybody who is pouring into this city is talking about him. There's a whole bunch of people who are just so curious now. And Jesus has done everything he can to stir up the crowds and get them excited about him as well. Which is a change, isn't it? Because for most of his life, he's been, you know, again, he, we went through a couple transition periods in Matthew. Right? We reached this major transition when the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Then all of a sudden, Jesus starts to teach in parables. His ministry becomes much more private. Then the next major transition is at Matthew 16, at the confession of, of Peter. But he, he's been kind of laying low. He's been kind of avoiding crowds. Now he's being followed by lots of crowds. And rather than, you know, telling them to chill out, he's doing everything he can to get them stirred up. He knows what he's doing. Again, he knows the significance of being on the Mount of Olives and the prophecies that were written about him. And he knows what people were already thinking about him. I mean, the, the evidence of who, he, of who he is was already very, very overwhelming. Who's going to show up and do more deeds than, than this man? 
People were saying, well, could this be the Christ? It has to be. And so here he, he comes. He's presenting himself as the Messiah. And some people are believing him as the Messiah. But then at the same time, there are others who just want to kill him all the more. And now he's become a true threat. Here's something to just think about. Jesus doesn't show up to being crucified on uh, the, towards the end of the week without him doing this. <laughs> like this, this raises the tension to such an extreme level it's difficult to comprehend. They go into full panic mode, the religious leaders do. We have got to do something about him or the whole world, everybody's going to be following him. And so here the people are as he enters the crowds. We see them at work. That they are laying down the red carpet for Jesus. That they are throwing their cloaks out on the road for, for the donkey to walk on. I mean, it's not even that Jesus himself is walking on this, right? I mean... A pretty dirty animal. He's already not walking on the path, but let's make sure the path is clean for the donkey that he's riding on. And for those that didn't throw out their cloaks, what did they do? We're told that they were cutting branches off of the trees and putting them down. And we're not told in Matthew that they were cutting palm branches, but we are told that in John 12, hence Palm Sunday. And there's something very interesting about palm trees and palm branches you see palm branches they, they represent strength they represent beauty and really they represent salvation it's quite profound to see a palm tree it's beautiful it's green and it's growing in a very arid deserty climate the, the, the branches were so strong, again, that they could be put down on the path and tread upon. And what a picture of what Jesus is. He is the picture of beauty. He is the picture of strength. He is the picture of salvation. And all sorts of people are with him now. The crowd is enormous, so enormous. I mean, we've got like a real escort going on here. We've got people that are walking in front of him. We've got people that are walking behind him. This is, a, this is an entourage, for sure. And notice what they're shouting. Hosanna! Hosanna! Hosanna literally is a plea meaning save now. Save now. Save us now. Oh, son of David, save us now. They acknowledge who he is. They're praising God for who he is. But the question is, what are they actually crying out to be saved from. Again, most of them are still thinking about Rome, right? They're still thinking about Gentile rule. They're thinking about how Jesus is going to flex his muscle and might is going to make right, and they're thinking about judgment, and they're thinking about getting rid of this evil system of taxation and regulation and the like. And they're crying out with everything they are, save us now. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They have a, a picture in their mind of what kind of salvation they need, and they are hoping that Jesus will deliver it. This statement, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it is not a random declaration. It was an expression taken from Psalm 118, verse 26. And the interesting thing is that when the Jews would go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, they actually had a playlist. They had these songs that they would sing on their journey to Jerusalem and when they were in Jerusalem. They were called Songs of Ascent because, of course, when you go to Jerusalem, that's what you do. You ascend Jerusalem. You go up to Jerusalem. Songs of Ascent. And the Psalms of Ascent are Psalms 113 through Psalm 118. So this is the, this is the last psalm in the playlist that they're quoting from. But consider the irony of what they're saying. Because again, we know the salvation they're crying for. We know their psalm, the psalm that they're quoting from. But do you know what it says immediately before, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Psalm 118, verse 22 says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And that talks about the rejection of Jesus. There's just so much profundity with what happens. In Psalm 118, this isn't going to be the first time that this comes up. You're going to see Psalm 118 mentioned at least three more times throughout the Passover week. Psalm 110, oftentimes referred to as the, as the most frequently quoted psalm in the Old Testament. Psalm 118 is a close second when you figure in all the allusions and times that it's referenced. It is significant, and it speaks, of course, to the fact that the Savior that the Jews needed would not be the Savior that they expected. It would be a Savior that they rejected, but a Savior that they needed. And now, given that we've just touched on the rejection, let's look at our last point here the king's perplexing reception. The king's perplexing reception. And we read in verse 10, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Remember Moses spoke about a prophet who would come one day? And Jesus is that prophet. But he's different than any prophet who had ever lived, right? Because where other prophets had a message, Jesus was the message. He is the prophet. And when you read this, it really should kind of take you back again to his birth. We just we referenced that a little bit ago, right? But it's like Jesus is born, and who are the people celebrating his birth? 
It's not Jerusalem. It's wise men that come from the east. And they make their way to Jerusalem, expecting that, that the king is on his throne and that all of Jerusalem is worshiping this king. And they come, right? And, and they start inquiring, where's the king? And Herod gets all worked up. What are you guys talking about? I'm the king. No, 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 no. We saw his star and we've come to visit him. And, and, and we're told that the entire city gets stirred up. And then Herod calls on the Jewish leaders. Where is this one to be born? Well, in Bethlehem. And we know what Herod does. He kills every boy two years of age and younger. Because he is threatened. But Jerusalem is sitting there completely clueless. And the wise men from afar, they come to worship him. Friends, Jesus comes and he is rejected by his own people. Every time you think of his story, you have to think about your story. Every one of you has a picture in your minds of the salvation that you need. You, you have things that you want in life. And you've been striving after them. For some, it's respect. For others, it's riches. It's comfort. It's convenience. The Jews wanted that as well. But what they wouldn't admit is the Savior that they needed. The one that came to suffer and die in the place of sinners, the one who had to pay the price for their sin. And here would be my hope for you this morning, that you wouldn't make the same mistake, but that you would treasure in your heart what Jesus has done. The king has come, and he did everything that you just wouldn't expect a king to do, where he humbled himself, and he was gentle and he was lowly. And he cared for every suffering person that came to him. And even today, he offers himself to you to be your Savior and Lord. And all you need to do is cry out, Hosanna, and believe in him, and trust in him, and follow him. That's what this season is about. It's about celebrating a Savior that did everything that we needed. A Savior who would come to save us from ourselves and also save us from the wrath of God that is to come. And He is God's only provision for you. If you reject Him, there's nothing else. Then all you can expect is God's future judgment upon your life. But that doesn't have to be the outcome. Because Jesus did everything necessary to fully satisfy God's justice on our behalf. Praise the Lord for his grace. Praise the Lord for his kindness. Praise him that he is the king that we need. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. 
Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.